That was my fault. I waited too long to turn my microphone on. We'll get it adjusted here in a minute. I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I had two conversations recently that I want to introduce this message with. One of them was by email, another was face-to-face. A friend of mine who is a missionary in Eastern Europe wrote me by email a few weeks ago telling me of the stress his family has been under because of several years now in that place. And he said that he had before him the option of coming back to the United States and getting involved in business here in the Twin Cities or staying in another part of Eastern Europe in ministry where the pressure is not so extreme as in the country where he is now. And he said, what would you advise me to do? Well, of course, my first thought was for his ministry and the fact that he has learned the language and knows the culture. It would be good to stay in that part of the world. But my second thought, and the one that I mentioned to him first, was this. My counsel to you is not to bring your children back into the American culture. Just last week I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine here in the Twin Cities. And he said to me, Galen, I have had the privilege of traveling in 50 countries now around the world. And he said, I I can say to you without any hesitation that this culture is the most difficult in the world in which to be a leader, whether in the home, in the church, or in society at large. Those are interesting commentaries, aren't they, on the culture in which you and I are immersed and in which we must live. The pop culture of this nation seems to be geared toward anarchy and destruction. It is living out the philosophy of Nietzsche. Everyone, in the terms of the book of Judges, seems to want to do what is right in his own eyes. And so we have an America that is drowning in the sewage of its popular culture. Chuck Colson was talking about this a few uh, months ago on his broadcast, Breakpoint, and had this to say as he is referring to uh, pop culture and talking about a book that he was particularly interested in at that point. He says, In All God's Children and Blue Suede Shoes, written by Ken Myers, the author says, The challenge of living with popular culture may well be the most serious challenge facing Christians today. In some ways, it is even more difficult than the persecution Christians faced in earlier centuries. Of course, being thrown to the lions is pretty gruesome, but at least it was an easily recognized threat. Popular culture, on the other hand, is a very subtle threat. It can cause a gradual erosion of character that many Christians don't even recognize. What do you mean, we don't recognize it, you may ask, writes Colson. Any Christian can tell you that the level of sex and violence has risen sharply in movies, rap music, and dime store novels. True enough, Myers says, but these are concerns about content, 
What is often overlooked is the form. The form of popular culture can shape the way we respond regardless of the message. For comparison, consider the music and art of high culture. A Christian poem, excuse me, a classical poem or symphony has a complex structure that takes some effort to understand. It challenges the mind. You have to work to appreciate it. But Harlequin romances, soap operas, and rock music don't require any intellectual discipline. They're easy to understand. They offer immediate gratification. Colson goes on to say, over time, these things affect us. By focusing on immediate experience, pop culture discourages sustained attention. Pop culture is a bit like rock, junk food. There's nothing inherently sinful about it, but too much of it can spoil our appetite for healthy food. And then he poses this question, how can Christians survive in a junk food culture? You and I are living in a culture today that is shaping us. And I'm talking to those of us who are Christians. We Christians are being molded by the values, the addictions, the mindsets, and the expectations of life that are essentially pagan. And the reality is, as Myers points out, that most of us don't even recognize that this process of conforming to culture is happening. That's why the text in Colossians is so important today. We are not here to be conformed to the world. But we are here to be transformed and to be transformers. God calls us as those who are alive from the dead in Jesus Christ to live in the midst of a post-Christian, perhaps neo-pagan culture. And he calls us to live in this culture so distinctively that we will stand out from it and make a difference. And so I asked the question that Francis Schaeffer posed years ago, how should we then live? What should characterize us as those who are alive from the dead in the midst of a culture like we're living in? The Apostle Paul in our text points to two important areas of life and he gives us a starting place for the answer to that question. Conduct yourselves, he says, verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Notice that he talks about conduct and conversation. With regard to conduct, he says, be wise. Notice that he mentions those who are outsiders in verse 5. 
This is not a term that Paul uses only here. He uses the same idea in 1 Thessalonians 4.12, 1 Timothy 3.7, and in some other places. But when you use the term outsiders, there is an implication. And that is that there are insiders. I don't mean insiders in some elite, aristocratic sense, but I'm talking here about biblical insiders in a spiritual sense. What this word outsiders does is remind us that God discriminates. God discriminates. Not on the basis of skin color or some superficial thing, but God discriminates between persons based upon their relation to Jesus Christ. God discriminates at a fundamental level of one's spiritual identity. Insiders are those who come to him, to Jesus Christ, kneeling at his cross in repentance and faith. And in trusting him, they become insiders. The Colossians that are being written to here were insiders. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 2 where Paul addresses them as to the saints and faithful brethren what's the next phrase? in Christ they are the insiders that is they are in Jesus Christ because they have trusted him conversely the outsiders are those who are not in Jesus Christ who have not placed their faith in him who have spurned his cross as a means of salvation they're outside the family of God. They're outside the provision that God has made for forgiveness of sin. They're outside the place of protection from God's wrath upon sin. They are fundamentally the outsiders. I don't know about you, but I sang a children's chorus as a little boy that says, Only one door and only one. Remember that one? And yet its sides are two, inside and outside. On which side are you? You see, in that little chorus it says the same thing. There are those who are inside the door of salvation, and then there are those who are outside. Paul writes to insiders, and he says, You live in a world where there are many outsiders. With regard to your conduct among them, be wise. As a habit of life, behave according to wisdom. Wisdom is insight that God gives us as to the true nature of things. Wisdom means to see life and all of its issues with a Christian worldview. And he says that you and I are to live in a world of outsiders with the kind of insight that God would give us because we belong to him. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15, 16, and 17, there's a parallel text that further elaborates upon what Paul means here. I invite you to turn back there. For he says in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, same word as conduct or conduct in Colossians. 
Be careful how you walk or conduct yourselves, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We are to walk in this world wisely. That means to walk carefully. It means accurately, due to being careful. It's a word that might describe how some of the boys and girls in school do their homework. It's possible to get homework done, but not to do it accurately. That is, to go through the problems in a hurry, put down something on the paper, and yet not to be careful to be accurate. The Apostle says to you and me here that we are to conduct ourselves in this world being careful about how we live. Not just living through the day. Not just going through the motions of life, but accurately living according to the wisdom that God gives. And why? Because he says the days are evil. That word evil means malignant evil. It doesn't mean benign evil. It means it's evil like a cancer that is out to kill and to destroy. And he says that our culture, the day in which we live, is evil, actively evil. And therefore, we need to live wisely and avoid the evil of our age. We are to show wisdom with how we deal with this pagan culture. And we are to be very, very careful of it. And yet, many of us listen to the same music lyrics. We attend the same concerts and shows. We watch the same videos. We spend money the same way. We use Sunday, the Lord's Day, the same way. We make certain moral choices the same way as our pagan culture. And when we do that, we are not living according to the Word of God. For God says we are to conduct ourselves with wisdom. Being very careful of this evil culture that is destructive to us as persons, to our families, and as we see sadly also to our nation. And so as you think about your lifestyle and the choices that you make and the way that you live day in and day out, it behooves you to carefully make those choices. Now he says with regard to conversation, we're to be winsome. The point that he's making in Colossians 4, 6 is that we need to know how to answer or to respond to outsiders in what they say. And whether it be something that is written or something that is verbally communicated, he wants us to be, with, to be, to be filled with winsomeness in the way that we relate to outsiders. Now, Peter comes alongside of Paul here, and he says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. My impression of the Promise Keepers Conference this weekend is that it met with much less controversy and confrontation here in the Twin Cities than last year. Maybe that's only my limited and improper perspective, but that would be my view and what I have read and seen on television about it. And I think the reason for that is that people who have answered for that movement and men who have been interviewed, as I heard some people interviewed yesterday by the media, have answered with winsomeness. They have been ready to give an answer about the things that they're being slandered about. And because of that winsome answer, those who would attack them have been forced to keep quiet, being put to shame. That's what Peter's saying here. There are two descriptive phrases to embellish the standard that Paul gives when he says, let your speech be winsome. He says, let it be with grace always. This is the same word in chapter 3, verse 16, translated thanksgiving. Always with thanksgiving or always with grace. He's talking about let your speech be that which causes delight, that which is beautiful, that which is pleasing. He's talking about more than just being charming, but he's talking about imparting to others through your speech the grace that God has given you in your life. As it says of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Now it quickly changed. Not the words from his lips, but the attitude that they had toward him in that chapter. But the fact is that as Jesus ministered to people, he ministered with grace upon his lips. That's how we want to minister to our wives, men. Children, that's how you want to be ministering to your mother on this Mother's Day, to your father. That's how we want to minister to each other, with grace upon our lips. But not only in the circle. He's saying here, outside in the world where we live, in this pagan culture, grace must be upon our lips. And our speech, he says, should be seasoned with salt. That is, there should be a holy pungency about it. He's not telling us here that we always have to be Minnesota nice in our speech. There are times when hard things must be said, or controversial things. But he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let it not be dull or insipid, but let there be potency to it, a sanctified potency. Salt has at least two purposes, to purify and to preserve. 
And so let your speech and mine be the kind of speech that is wholesome, that will purify others, not dirty up their minds or their motives or cloud the issues in their lives, but clarify things for them. And let our speech be that which preserves from corruption. I tell you, a spirit-filled, gracious, and potent tongue is an asset to any Christian. Words matter, don't they? State Senator Ember Young, a DSLer from New Hope, spent some time this last session just writing down things that she heard her fellow legislators say. Listen to some of the things that she heard in the Senate chamber. There comes a time to put principle aside and do what's right. It's a great statement, isn't it? Another man said, It takes real courage to vote against your convictions. Anyone can carry a good bill. It's, a really, it's really hard to get a bad bill passed, though. These are not my figures I'm quoting. They're the figures of someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Remember, if you conquer yourself, you conquer the greatest evil on earth. Someone else said, I misquoted myself. That takes some work, doesn't it? Mr. President, before I give you the benefit of my remarks, I'd like to know what we're talking about. Good idea. And I think my favorite one is this. We're caught between the dog and the fire hydrant. That says it pretty well. Words say something, don't they? And what the Apostle says is that as you and I conduct ourselves among the outsiders, our speech is to carry the fragrance of Jesus Christ to the world. It is to be with His grace upon our lips and our speech having a holy pungency so that what we say makes a difference. When we talk about our society being pagan or neo-pagan, perhaps, we're not saying our society is irreligious. A poll conducted three years ago now said that 90% of Americans profess belief in God. More than half of Americans say they pray at least once a day. And get this one. More than 40% claim to have attended worship services in any given week. 40%, and yet another survey showed that half of the 40% were lying about it. <laughs> you see, religion pervades American life, but only a minority take it very seriously. Hopefully those of us who are insiders, because we have trusted Jesus Christ, 
are among those who take our faith seriously. And as a result of that in our speech and in our conduct in the world, we make a difference. You know, it's time for all of us who name the name of Jesus Christ to put aside the wondering that we have done in our culture and the experimentation with this idea and that value. It's time for us to stop being conformed to the world and to come to Jesus Christ afresh and repent of our waywardness and our sinfulness, to come home to him and to say, Jesus Christ, I seek to be your man and your woman in the midst of a world like this. I want to live my Savior for you in this world. And the Apostle reminds us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we only have a brief opportunity to live and so to live wisely. I close with the words of William F. Taylor who writes, We travel through this world only once. So let us live to some purpose. The day that dawns this morning will never come again. The opportunities it brought will never return. If we fail to fill our measure of time with the service it requires of us, there will be no possibility of returning to this day to repair the mischief. The wheels of time's chariot have ratchets, ratchets on them, and they move only forward. And so by God's grace, you and I have tomorrow, and perhaps another week before we meet again together like this. As we would gather in seven days, let us seek by God's grace to have our speech and our conduct among the outsiders in the world be such that they will see Jesus Christ in us and be drawn to want to know him and be drawn by the Spirit of God to trust him so that they too can get on the inside of the door. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will apply this message to our hearts and our lives as you see it needs to be. There's not a husband or a wife. There's not a father, a mother, a child. There's not one of us, young or old, that who needs to hear what this text says. Forgive us for where we have conformed to the culture and so mightily work in us that we will be transformers even as we are being transformed by the Spirit of God. Let's stand together as we sing, please. I'm going to ask us to sing without accompaniment just a simple chorus. In my life, Lord, be glorified. And if this morning you would like to have special prayer regarding a need in your life, or if you need to come and in coming say, today I would trust the Savior, 
or come and say, I, I need a new beginning in my life. I've been away from God, and today I want a new start. I want to invite you to slip out and come and stand here in the front, and we'll dismiss everyone, and I'll have an opportunity to pray to talk with you briefly. As we sing the chorus with our heads bowed, I invite you to slip out if you desire this special time of prayer. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. Not only in our life and our conduct, but in our speech, Lord, be glorified. In our speech, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In our speech, Lord, be glorified today. Lord, hear the prayer of our hearts, and answer it, we pray, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.